how's everyone doing? All right, I'm sure we're, we're all facing a lot of different week, and we're all staring down the barrel of a lot of different week. A lot of, lot of challenges, a lot of unknowns, uh, a lot of the ground moving uh, underneath us, a lot of currents going on in the relationships within our lives and around our lives, an awful lot out of our control, if we're quite honest with ourselves. And that's, that's scary when we admit it. And, and so I think we have a craving to, to know something, to control something, to say, this is me, this is my life, this is my experience, it's valid. The way I've lived what I know, um, it's worth something and I can contribute to this world. We want to be certain about things in life, of course, and the more important things are, the more certain we want to be. Now, certain means that you're convinced that you have all the information that there is on something, and it is enough for you to come to a, 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 a firm conviction that this is, in fact, the way things are. You've looked, you, you came, you saw, you made a decision, and that's the way it is. And so there's a lot of, um, lot of examples throughout history. How many people know uh, what this thing is? Um, how many people heard of Digital Equipment Corporation? All right, yes, a couple back in the day and in the business and whatnot. They were the big competitor to um, IBM. And they were really arguing against the PC. And so the founder, president, CEO, and director said this. There is no reason, this is 1977, anyone would ever want a computer in their own home. There's no need. We're not even going to waste time with this. We're going our way. It's the way of the future. He was certain. He knew the future. He was the president of this computer industry that was giving IBM a run for their money in the business world. He's an expert. We should have listened to him. Next person said this, we will never make a 32-bit operating system. That's just fantasy time. We'll never do that. This guy said that. Bill Gates. Yeah, 32-bit's kind of a um, janky system, by the way. Okay. Um, X-rays. <laughs> I think that's Homer Simpson. I'm not sure. Maybe it's me. I, I get, him, get, get him confused a bit. Um, Lord Kelvin was the foremost scientist of his day. In fact, for anybody in the sciences, uh, you know, it was enough to, you know, go from Fahrenheit to Celsius, right? Actually, science doesn't use Celsius, they use Kelvin. That's the absolute measurement of things. And so Lord Kelvin was a guy who was just, I mean, he had a unit of physics named after him. So he's kind of an expert. He said, we will never have any use for x-rays, and in the end, they're going to prove to be a hoax. Lord Kelvin, who was the president of the Royal Society, also said this, heavier than air flying machines are impossible. I'm a physicist, I'm a mathematician. And so this guy was the president, he was an expert, no can do. This flying machine, for example, this is the Boeing 247. The president of Boeing, or an engineer, said this, this plane is the pinnacle achievement. There will never be a larger plane that can be built. Here's a view of the inside of the plane. Ten seats. He was an engineer. This was the state of the art. There was, this was his crowning achievement. He was certain he was right. Somebody wrote this letter. Dear Mr. President, 
The canal system of this country is being threatened by a new form of transportation known as railroads. As you well know, Mr. President, railroad carriages are pulled at the enormous speed of 15, 1, 5, 15 miles per hour by engines, which in addition to endangering life and limb of passengers, roar and snort their way through the countryside, setting fire to crops, scaring livestock, frightening women and children. The Almighty certainly never intended people should travel at such breakneck speed. Do you know who said that? Governor of New York, Martin Van Buren. I mean, it's not like he went on to become president or anything. I mean, The energy produced by breaking, the breaking down of the atom is a very poor kind. Anyone who expects a source of power from the transformation of these atoms is talking moonshine. That was Ernest Rutherford. If you're familiar with Ernest Rutherford, uh, he's one of the foremost physicist chemists. Uh, his contributions to science are absolutely astounding. Genius of his era. He knew what he was talking about. With Adam, he was on the ground floor with with the science behind splitting the atom. But he was certain he had all the information, and this would never, never come to pass. Another person commented this on this: "This is the biggest fool thing we've ever done. The bomb will never go off, and I speak as an expert in explosives." Admiral William Leahy, Chief of Staff to Commander in Chief of the Army and Navy during World War II, advising President Truman on the A bomb. He was the expert, the expert in the entire country. He was convinced, he was certain it would never happen. The cinema is little more than a fan, a fad. It's canned drama. What audiences really want is to see flesh and blood on stage. Charlie Chaplin said that. And if you recognize his pioneering work in movies, it's kind of ironic considering he founded a film studio IBM sent an internal memo to one of their internal departments in 1959. This department later became Xerox. This is what the internal memo said. The world, and it, it can imagine in a very condescending tone. The world potential for market for copying machines is 5,000 at most. This idea will never work. So they went and founded their own company. The rest is history. Fooling around with alternating current is just a waste of time. Nobody will use it ever. Thomas Edison, exactly. There was a huge campaign in the 80s uh, by a um, record producing company, and it was called Home Taping is Killing Music. And they laid out the case. They were certain that unrestricted use of cassettes to record songs off the radio. Now, I know I'm talking a foreign language to most of you, okay? You're like, what's a cassette? What's a mixtape? Why, why would... I heard you need a pencil to run one of these things. How is... What, what is up with that? So, so we're, we're, we're digging down into the archaeological layers here. But trust me, it was a thing, you know, back before MP3s. This is what you would do. And they were certain that it would be the downfall of music as we know it if we allowed this horrible thing to continue. And then finally, uh, movie producer for 20th Century Fox said this. Television will not be able to hold any market it captures after the first six months. People will soon get tired of staring at a plywood box every night. 
Okay, now, now hindsight's twenty twenty. so let's be fair. I'm sure a lot of things that we are certain on, if we fast forward 20 years, 200 years, people are going to be laughing at us. But you know what? They're going to be laughing at us for a whole bunch of other reasons, okay? So, so let's not get too worried about second-guessing ourselves. Certainty. It's something that we want. It's something that we need. I think in terms of this world, in terms of so many variables, so many things out of our control, we want to know where our feet touch the ground. We want to know what's right. We want to do the right thing. And tell me, what is the next step that I should take? And so God has designed us a certain way. When he's breaking down his word for us, he tells us to love us with every bit of ourself, every bit of our being. Uh, Love him with all your mind, with all your heart, with your strength, with your soul. The, The Talmud includes with all your money, with everything that's important to you, everything that you use to make you, you love God. And the mind is certainly part of that. So arriving at conclusions, dealing with information, seeking the truth, Jesus is all about that. Seek the truth. Know the truth. The truth will make you free. Um, absolutely, this is, this is a good thing. But the problem is, 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 is certainty where we arrive or certainty our next jumping off point? Are we allowing to let God be God ultimately or is the default course of our lives really when push comes to shove, we need to be God? And as we looked at the last couple weeks, does God really need to prove himself? He needs to pass my bar of admission. He needs to do things the way I would do it, in a way that's understandable, in a way that makes sense to me. He needs to do things as the way I would do them if I were God. Now, God, I'm going to let you finish. <laughs> but if I were you, and, and, and so much is the rest, rest of our story. I think what we find often, our defense of God can inoculate us to him. That we spend a lot of effort trying to make God be the kind of God we need him to be or want him to be. Or the God that we presuppose him to be. The way the Bible has to work. The way faith works. The way church works. The way Christian relationships work. The way uh, our placement in the world. We have assumptions the way this should be. And we're certain. And so we get offended when it doesn't work. We get hurt. Things break. It's, it's a mess. And a lot of that's based on the way we feel it should go. So this is something we continually need to be refining, but especially when it comes to God and his truth, we need to be open-handed so we can be open-hearted, okay? G.K. Chesterton said this. This is the dude that kind of was instrumental in leading C.S. Lewis to the Lord. He was a dude who was instrumental in leading a lot of other people to the Lord. But anyway, this old British guy said this. He said, the mind is not like a parachute that is useless unless it's open. Okay, you've heard that, right? Mind's like a parachute, you know. Got to keep it open and open mind. Okay, and the mind's not like a parachute. Mind's like a mouth. You, you don't walk around with your mouth open the whole time. Ah, just looking for food. You know, like you're, like you're some sort of a filter feeder just going through life. Ah, 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 ah. Um, the mouth remains open until it finds something satisfying, substantial to bite down on, to chew. And then it satisfactorily chews down and digests and swallows so the nutrients can be taken in. Same thing with the mind. It remains open until it finds something truthful, substantial, and then it goes to work on it so it can be taken in. The mind doesn't remain open all the time. The mind sinks down on that which is true. But it is a continual process. And what we're going to look is at the stories of everybody entering into the story of Jesus. They were already certain, even before they encountered Jesus. And it prevented them from seeing Jesus for who he was. But it's really the story of me and it's the story of you. So what, where we find ourselves in our uh, 
whirlwind tour of the Gospel of John is John chapter 7. You can follow in the Pew Bibles in front of you, or um, I'll have it up here on screen. Looking at John chapter 7, and this is a feast. Now, we're getting close to actually, even though we're, we're in the middle, we're not even in the middle, first third of the book of John, we're, we're getting close to the end of Jesus' life, okay? And this is kind of all spread out and magnified. So this is one of the final uh, festivals. It's not Passover yet. This is um, about a half year before uh, the, the Passion. But this is the last and most favorite feast of the party season. Now, the Jews had a party season, and it kicked off with Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it went for about six months, and there are all sorts of cool things that happened. And, th- and then the big one, the Super Bowl of all the parties, was called the Feast of Tabernacles, or booths, or the feast, Sukkot. And it was this place where they commemorated God's leading them faithfully in the wilderness. So everybody got up, did a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. It was a huge disruption in their life. So God could wire into their lives again. Where are you now? This is what you thought a year ago. Are you still certain? This is what you thought about me, about you, about others. Let's revisit this. Let's sing through in worship. Let's disrupt your life. Let me meet you in the interruptions. Let's work this through. What changes? What's different? So that's the backdrop here. And, and this, is, this is like the, the, the biggest of all festivals. So it is just, um, it's a party atmosphere. It's, it's anticipating, but it's also a lot of going through the motions. And so the, crowd, the crowds are in Jerusalem. He's staying in Bethany, and he kind of goes back and forth, walks about six miles uh, to and from Jerusalem each day to sort of do his thing. And so all his family is there. They're in Bethany and they're encouraging Jesus. Hey, come on, Jesus, join the party. After this, so what we had looked at last week in John chapter 6. This is where John said, or John John told us that Jesus said, um, Jesus looked at the crowd and said, hey, you're following me because I'm meeting your needs. Not just because you saw miracles, not just because something's pointing beyond what is real to you. But you got your needs met and nothing more. Do you wind up being satisfied in me or is that where you start? Because that's the whole difference between a mercenary contract or not. And so he puts the ultimate filter. He says, this is, this is really what it's about. You must fill in the blank. Do the most horrible thing you can imagine. As a Jew, you must actually cannibalize. And, and the Jews couldn't understand. They're like, how could this be flesh and blood? And Jesus was talking in shocking terms to say, let go of the categories that you have. Let go of the, the do this and don't do this and, and way of being before God. And what I'm talking about blows categories away. So in the same way of how could it make sense for you to actually physically start eating on me? And what Jesus was talking about wasn't symbolic of communion. He was deliberately being shocking. It was a siren. It was a clarion call to say, hey, guys, pay attention here. Let go of your categories. It's not going to fit. And so everything that you know is going to be scandalized if you're still holding on to that with certainty. You have to allow me to work. Let the scriptures you're certain of breathe and speak of me. After this, Jesus went around in Galilee. He did not want to go around in Judea, that's where uh, Jerusalem is, because the Jewish leaders were looking for a way to kill him. Okay, before it was, they were upset. They were perturbed. They sent people to question. Um, they, they were afraid of the crowds because they thought he was a prophet. And it's this kind of intrigue. Now it comes straight up. They were looking for a way to murder him. And he knew it, and his family knew it. But when the Jewish festival of tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, 
Take us to Mount Splashmore. 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 It's a Simpsons episode. They kept bugging him. They wanted to go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. Let's go to Jerusalem. Leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works you do. No one who wants to become a public figure acts in secret. Since you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. For even his own brothers did not believe in him. Therefore, Jesus told them, my time is not yet here. For you, any time will do. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, should be me, because I testify its works are evil. You go to the festival. I'm not going up to this festival because my time has not yet fully come. After he said this, he stayed in Galilee. And so there's a statement that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. Who got the most Jesus of anybody? With the crowds, the people that came to faith, the people that got healed, the disciples. Who got the most Jesus? His brothers. They, however old the brothers were, that's how much Jesus they had up, up until 30 years. Only the last couple years they, they saw Jesus off and on. But their entire lives, for every single brother, and we have four names in Scripture and two sisters. So, so the four that we know about besides Jesus, each one of them could say, my entire life I have known Jesus, ate with Jesus, slept with Jesus, listened to him snore every night, had him t- teach me about cleaning up the wood shop, and, you know, and, and, and watched him model. They knew more of Jesus than any of us ever could imagine. And the statement here, and yet they were certain they knew him. They knew who he was. They knew all of him and nothing more. If anyone had a a, a more up-close and personal view, it would be his brothers. They saw the non-public Jesus. They saw the unofficial Jesus. They saw the tired Jesus. They saw the grouchy Jesus. They saw all of this Jesus. They knew him. And so they were doing what what I typically do. God, if I were you, I would do it this way. And so in their certainty, he's a miracle worker. He's touched by God. He has the gift. He's a savant. He can count cards in Vegas. And so they're like, go public, bro. Dude, you got some mad skills. Go public. It's going to be big. It'll be a monster. We'll go up there, some party tricks. Boom. And then you can close with a feeding. It'll blow them away. I can get you on CNN. I can take this big. I got some friends at the Shark Tank. They'll get us into CVS. They'll get us in Costco. I mean, this thing, we're going to blow this thing up. And so they're saying, if I had these gifts, if the crowds were clamoring after me, this is what I would do. And so they were certain, and now their agenda for themselves became their agenda for God. They were certain, and they couldn't have been more wrong. Everything they knew was true, but it wasn't the whole story. And all the, if, you know, with the, the wisdom of Solomon and bad intel is a fool's decision every single time. But enough about the elder board. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Um, no, literally, this is, this is what we're worried about with leadership in the church. We've got good guys who want to make the best decisions. And we can have the wisdom of Solomon, but if we're not aware of what's actually going on in the church what the real issues are, what people are really feeling, it's going to be a fool's decision every single time. Same way with certainty here. Everything we know could be true, but if it's not the whole story, we're going sideways. And so the people didn't have the whole story. We did. We read the first chapter of John. They didn't. We saw the rest of our lives. They haven't. So we can forgive them a bit, but we need to realize their certainty was not helping them. Okay. 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 However, 
After his brothers had left for the festival, he went also, not publicly, but in secret. Now at the festival, the Jewish leaders were watching for Jesus and asking, where is he? Among the crowds, there was widespread whispering about him, murmuring, uh, secret talk. Some said, he's a good man. Others replied, no, he deceives the people. But no one would say anything publicly about him for fear of the leaders. See, Jesus recognized this. He said, my time, my appointed time, the time for me to more fully reveal myself, uh, it's coming in in portions. It's coming in waves because nobody's going to be able to receive it at once. I've got to slow drip this into people's lives. So he's saying, I'm, I'm going to do this, but I'm going to do it my way because my goal isn't going big or being public or your agenda. My goal is working into people's hearts. And there's a way to do that, and there's many ways not to do that. And one of the problems is certainty closes the door to our hearts. So he wants to meet people around their certainty, not fight them at the level of it. So he goes up to accomplish his own purposes. And even as he's sort of secret in the crowd, I imagine Jesus is there, and he's got one of those glasses with a nose and the mustache. and he's I don't know, maybe not. I just kind of picture that's how he was. You know, it's fine Waldo. And, and so he's there and, he, and he's listening to the talk. And even there with the crowds, we see the exact same thing that he saw intimately with his brothers and sisters. That, that they, they were certain and certainly wrong. Some say he's a good person. Oh, yeah, yeah, no, no, no. He, he did this. He helped my aunt. Uh, he, he, he's so gentle. Um, the, the people that I know, they, they went to this thing and they had a really good experience. And then other people were saying, no, 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 he deceives the person. He, he wrecks the boat. He doesn't respect authority. If you rebel against, you know, God has put his, the, the temple hierarchy in place, and we've got to listen to them, and not doing so is against God. And, and Jesus is this troublemaker. So, no, he deceives the people. He's wrong. And all these people were going back and forth. So these are two groups, and they were arriving. They weren't certain, but as much as they were able to see from their perspective, he's either a good person or a bad person. How many of these people do you think actually met Jesus? Very few. It was hearsay. And so they were basing their information on much less than his brothers had, but they were still in a headlong rush to arrive at a conclusion, a certainty. This is who he is. I've weighed the evidence. I talked to this person, this person, this person. This person's a wingnut. These people are reliable. Therefore, I know because I've got an inside track. And so people were arriving. Now, it said they were both talking quietly, each group, because everybody was in fear of the leaders. Why? Because the leaders began with an assumption. They began with certainty. They were convinced they were God's gift to mankind, that they were the ones standing between chaos and, and the new world order and in, in, in God in, in bringing the restoration of Israel, that they were mediating God to the people. It was a special calling, and they were absolutely right across the board, but it was so much more than that. And it was so much bigger and so beyond them. And so they were certain of their role. They couldn't see past themselves. And they weren't willing to allow anyone else to do so otherwise. And so in their certainty, they were actually thought they were serving God. And they were hindering him. In fact, Jesus tells his disciples, soon there's coming a time when people killing you will think they're rendering service to God. Who were those people? The, the leaders that the people were afraid of. And they had good reason. Um, and so they had arrived, they were certain as well. So there goes on to be this discussion about Mo- Jesus is now a little bit more public a few days later. He's talking about Moses circumcising eight days. He's like, guys, you're still snapped off about me healing on the Sabbath? That was like three chapters ago. No, he goes, that was like a year and a half ago. Um, what, why, why is it such a big deal? You guys do work on the Sabbath when, when it's commanded by Moses. 
What about restoring a whole person? So in the context of that, we discover yet another group. Moving on to chapter 25. At that point, some of the people of Jerusalem began to ask, isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Here he is speaking publicly, and they're not saying a word to him. Have the authorities really concluded that he is the Messiah? Okay, so the, 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 the people who are really trying to, to get him, they're looking for him, they're looking for him. There he is in public. They're afraid of the crowd. They're not saying anything. So they're drawing their own conclusions. Well, if they wanted to kill him, they haven't. He must be the Messiah. Um, yeah, have they concluded that he's the Messiah? But we know where this man is from. When the Messiah comes, no one will know where he is from. They knew he was from, where he was from because he was from Galilee. Galilean accent was so recognizable to everyone. It was just, it was such a brutal, such a painful accent to listen to. It was so backwater. It's such a twang. I mean, it was just, Wow. And so that's why the slave girl could single Peter out immediately. You're from Galilee. Your accent gives you away. No, I'm not. I'm not from Galilee. Uh, yes, you are. You're from Galilee. No, no, I'm from, I'm from Boston. I'm from Boston, y'all. I don't do a southern accent. I apologize. And I don't mean to insult anyone south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, but, but it would be like you're, you're trying to play it off. Fuss is das. I, I'm not German. I'm not German. I'm a native English speaker. Varum, I am English speaker. I will squeeze you like big toothpaste with my thighs. You know, and so you're, you're trying to make a case and you're not. That's how obvious it was. You know, Schwarzenegger, you know, president. Okay, it's that obvious. So in hearing this, they said, how can he? We know the Messiah comes from Galilee. All his peeps are from Galilee. He was raised in Galilee. He's famous for being known as the carpenter from Galilee. So everybody knows that we're not supposed to know where he's from. And so they were certain. The Bible teaches that the Messiah is going to be from an unknown place. We know this guy comes from uh, Galilee. Therefore, I am certain he can't be the Messiah. Check. Done. Okay, well, the more stuff goes on and the people are still arguing. So um, comes up again, uh, verse 42. People are arguing. Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem? Okay, so the crowd are saying, no, 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 we're not supposed to know where he's from. So another group corrects him. No, 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 no. There's this verse. There's this verse. This prediction where, where uh, you know, the, the, the prophecy on the tribes and from you, uh, Judah, or no longer, no longer the least of these from you, Bethlehem, will come a, a prophet to shepherd my people. Messiah. And so somebody brought up that verse. Aha. Does not Scripture say that the Messiah will come from David's descendants and from Bethlehem, the town where David lived? Thus the people were divided because of Jesus. Why? Why, you're right. Here's the Scripture. Um, it, it does say that. And so again, he's from Galilee. He couldn't be the Messiah. Well, we know he was born in Bethlehem, but nobody else did. There weren't birth records. There weren't all these other things. They were just kept there once every 20 years or so. He was born and raised in Galilee. So we have an inside story. They were convinced. Black and white, the way I read the Bible, it says the Messiah will be born here. He wasn't, therefore he isn't. And the crowd continues to divide. Now, now this, this whole John chapter 7 is pretty complex, and it's going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. So I, I, I sh showed it to you a little bit out of order to show the different people in all the different ways. They, they were absolutely right and couldn't be more wrong. Brothers had more information than we ever would on Jesus. All the cool, up-close and personal, intimate things we'd love to know about Jesus. 
What kind of sense of humor did he have? You know, was he, what, 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 you know, how did, what was his teasing like? What was his, you know, how, how did he just relate to people? They saw that and they were convinced. We had the people that had heard from the people they grew up with and they knew all these encounters of Jesus, all these people saying stuff. I've drawn my own conclusions. We had the rulers that knew the Bible more than any of us, all of us in this room put together. They knew the scripture by the letter better. And they were convinced they knew, and this is what God said. And that God said it, I believe it, that's the end of it. And they were certain, and they were certainly wrong. And then we have people here that knew scripture, knew verses about the Messiah, and were trying to apply it, but they were applying it in the wrong ways and getting all bent out of shape, and they were wrong. So Jesus, throughout this, drips three important things here of not, basically what he's saying is this, it says in many ways in Scripture, Job and Proverbs and Psalms, don't lean on your own understanding, but the proper understanding of God, the fear of the Lord, the right relationship, seeing God as he is, that's what the fear of the Lord is, God as he is, me as I am, I'm busted, he's holy, that's terrifying. He is loving and gracious and has forgiven me in Christ. That is unbelievable and blessed. And both are true. And I see him as, I, as it is. And these tensions draw me toward him. And so as, as, we, as we see this, as we, move this for, as we move forward, God's saying this is what it's about. Not more facts. Facts are important. We need them. And we need to know truth in order to be set free. But do we wind up there, our certainty? Or is it a jumping off point to know God better in relationship? So Jesus, through this, as I said, drips three points in, and that's what we're going to focus on. Point one, right in the midst of this, I say you're this, I say you're that. How could it be this? How could it be that? Jesus is like, shh, 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 Point one, he basically says this, it's not knowing, but doing. Guys, all you're talking about is knowing, knowing, knowing. I heard, I know, I talked, I saw, I da 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 head knowledge. He says, that's all great. But all of it is, is a theory until you actually try it on and see if it actually is so. Okay? So he says this. Not until halfway through the festival, Jesus went up to the temple courts. Okay, so this is the bit I skipped right in the middle. First point, the Jews were amazed and asked, how did this man get such learning without having been taught? Because he's speaking in a Galilean accent and because he's not a recognized teacher, but he absolutely is confounding people uh, with his knowledge of the word. Jesus answered, my teaching is not my own. It comes from the one who sent me. Okay, pay attention. 17, anyone who chooses to do the will of God and find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether my, I speak on my own, okay? How many people here are choosing to do the will of God? How many people are seeking God? How many people want to know what God has actually said apart from me, apart from others? Show of hands. Anyone seeking God? Want to know God more? Anybody here wanting to do the will of God? Anyone not wanting to do the will of God? Anyone saying to do the opposite? Okay, it's okay. That's cool too. Hey man, um, be a real person before God because that's where he meets us. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak in my own. Um, man, I left out a verse here. I so apologize. This is terrible. That is horrible. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God, thank you. Oh, I'm sorry, I was reading it wrong. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God. Anyone who chooses to do the will of God will find out whether my teaching comes from God or not. In other words, if you are engaging in the actual will of God, 
then you're not going to be resting on your own certainty. Then you're not going to be based on just what you know, what you allow, what you admit, what makes sense to you, what's familiar, what God gets to pass on, what makes sense. God can be God now because he's, he's correspondent to me. And the cure to this is doing. In other words, Christianity is not voyeuristic. Christianity is not an armchair quarterback, Monday morning, second-guessing God. Christianity is blind copy, Houston in the blind, being thrown into the situation, on-the-job training, doing, doing, doing. St. Augustine counseled all his young disciples this way. He said, guys, you are getting so torqued over so many things. Do not have to feel that you have to understand in order to believe because you will never get there because you have to understand everything and you won't. But you believe in order then that you may understand. You believe entering into a relationship that's qualitatively so different that the way you see the world and what happens in the world and what happens to you and how God's moving and how you see him in light of that is qualitatively so different and only then will you be able to understand. So he's saying everybody who is certain probably has stopped doing the will of God at a certain part in their life. Because it's in doing it that is the constant refining, constant refining, constant refining. Now here's the kicker. Whoever speaks on their own does so to gain personal glory. Now, now this is part of humanity. We want to be right. We want to be true. We want to be helpful. We don't want to be that person who, who's the wing nut. Um, we we, we, you know, we want to be respected. We want to, you know, it's our... our credibility. It's our name. It's our honor. So there's nothing necessarily wrong. So Jesus is just making a comment about human nature, not about self-aggrandizement or, 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 or whatever. Anybody who speaks on their own does so to seek personal glory, does so for their own benefit, does, does it to, to show how solid they are, does it to commend themselves to you. But he who speaks, seeks the glory of the one who sent him is a man of truth. There is nothing false about him. And so he ties 17 and 18 together by saying, okay, it's the one doing the will of God, but how do we know it is the will of God and not your will? Okay, it's, it's who, who are we seeing? Who sent us? Okay, point number one, it's not um, knowing but doing. Point number two means to do means we need to follow the right leader. Okay, the problem with certainty is that it is a closed loop. We are certain we have all the information. We are certain we've handled it rightly. We're certain that our experience base enables us to rightly determine everything else that's going on, the motives of other people's hearts, even what God is doing, and we land on that. And what happens is all, it's a mirror. All we're looking at is our own understanding, is our own issues, is our own needs, is our own way of doing this. We can't get beyond ourselves. So Jesus says, no, do you break this by doing the will of God? 95% of God's will is super clear to all humanity, super clear. People say, man, I want to know God's will. Y you mean something a little bit different. 95% of it is in scripture. It's super clear. Love God, love others. Billions of ways to do that. Deny yourself. Seek others good. Share the gospel. Give people a, uh, you know, give people a reason to ask you for the hope within you. It is so clear. Now, there's about 5%-ish that is particular for each one of us because the unique situation in which God's placed us, the uniqueness of our soul that God delights in and created for a purpose and how he wants to best form that. And I think that's truly what we mean if I want to know God's will. But here's the kicker. I spend so much time anguishing over this 5% and do I go this way, do I go that way? God, I so want to know. I'll do it, even if it's hard, if I'm convinced it's you. And so I want to be certain in knowing the will of God. But do you see what my problem is? 
I stopped doing the 95% that is super clear. And now I'm stuck in my, my progress and in my walk until I'm certain that I know what the next thing to do is in this 5%. I will never get out of this loop. Because my, my need to be certain is only based on me. And now I'm so busy making God the way I need God to be, I'm not following him. I'm not knowing him. And so my challenge for me is when I get in this, I want to be certain. I want to know the right way to respond, the right next thing to do, what God would have me to do. It's I have to ask myself, how much am I actually right now doing all the stuff that's super clear? And secondly, am I looking at me and my understanding of what I should be doing, how certain I am of this is the way the Christian life should be lived, this way and in, 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 in this style and this culture, or am I actually looking to Jesus and doing what he is doing? You see, what Jesus presupposes is this. You need to know who sent you. The one who seeks the glory of the one who sent him. Spoiler alert. Jesus is going to tell his disciples at the end of this when he's laying down the most important things. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Okay? Not as the world gives do I give you. I give you my peace. Not as the world sends with an agenda and and all about self. But I send you as the Father sent me. What has Jesus been saying all along here? And it's going to be all over next week in chapter 8. For the last four weeks, Jesus has been saying this. Guys, your argument isn't with me. It's with God. Everything you read in scripture is about him. And everything he said in scripture is about me. Okay. Anything I do, anything I say, Anything you get from me, it's because I see God doing it first and I imitate him. Jesus had such a clear understanding of who sent him, who he was following, who he was emulating. He could just do and the rest took care of itself. Do you see the difference between the two? Where the disciples were all, okay, it's just me. I want to be certain so I don't make a mistake. And just like the people, just like the teachers, just like his family, they were paralyzed. Final point. Religion should always point us toward relationship, not the other way around. See, often the longer we walk with the Lord, the more relationship becomes rote, institutionalized, predictable. Relationships tend to have an arc like this, right? Not necessarily. It's not inevitable. And our relationship with God tends to do this as well. And so Jesus, for his final triumphal point, says this. Now, I've got to set up the, um, the context for it. There's a seven-day festival, and there's a feast of the harvest, grapes and olive oil. And I'm not going to lie to you, it was a party time. There were a lot of grapes being harvested and a lot of grape byproducts being enjoyed. And uh, all historians said by day eight, people were very festive. Very festive. Really did not want to be on the cleanup crew after this. Well, anyway, day eight was the last and greatest day of the festival, and this was the roundup of everything that had been going on, and all the prayers, and all the sacrifices, and all the songs, and they've been singing this, and they're taking down all their booths, and they're packing up, and getting ready to go, and this is the final service just after the retreat, before everybody going. And this is the water pouring ceremony. They take this giant gold flagon. Isn't that a great word, flagon? I have no idea what a flagon is, but it's giant, and it's gold, and it holds water, so it's probably a big picture. It is. 
and they, they, they go to the Pool of Siloam, and they fill this thing up, and there's this monster processional going through the city, and they're bringing this flagon out, and everybody's singing and chanting and singing and chanting, and it's time of the morning offering. And so at the same time of the morning offering, there's the wine libation, which is brought in this giant silver bowl. And so they're bringing the wine out, and, uh, and so they've got both of these. And then before the altar, the priests have the ceremony where they pour the wine out, as they typically do, and then they pour the water. And everybody sings together with 600 um, uh, cantors, 600 of the, the choir, and they're singing the great Hallel, which is Psalms 113 to 118. Okay, Psalm 118 ends, tie the festival, festival sacrifice to the horns of the altar. That's the last thing Jesus sang before going to the Garden of Gethsemane. Okay, so all this is tying together in a much bigger way. But, but getting back to this, this is the scene that's going on. They're singing the great, the great praises, the great the praise of God. They're pouring out the water, and it symbolizes what God is going to do in the end time to restore people. It's cleansing. It's purifying. It's freeing. It's water. And everybody looked forward to this. So every single pilgrim would be there, and in their right hand, they would have this lekuv, which is a, a palm branch with a myrtle and... Uh, willow tied to it and then there'd be a citrus fruit big grapefruit or something in in their left hand and they'd shake them raise them to the lord and they'd shake them and they'd say blessed be the name of the lord thanks be to god three times thanking him for all the provision in the wilderness that they just celebrated thanking god for the harvest which he had just given them and looking forward to the final harvest of souls the final when god makes everything right and it was all symbolized by the pouring of the water Okay, eight days, people are pretty tired. Eight days, people are wanting to get home. Eight days, although this was the culmination, people are like, yeah, getting kind of old waiting for God to come back. Because it was a sense of God's going to make everything new and we're waiting for him. And then a year later, God's going to make everything new and we're waiting for him. This is the context where Jesus stands up, says in a very loud voice, because they're still seeking to kill him. On the last and greatest day of the festival, not lying to you, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The irony is the scripture that is recited as they're pouring the water out from Isaiah is the one that Jesus referred to. And there will be streams of living water poured out us in a desert flowing from the heart of all of my people. My rough paraphrase. And so what he's saying is the religion, the ceremony, the stuff that you're certain about. I do this, then I do this, then I do this. I check off the box, I get a gold star, and I go back to my life and God's cool with me. I'm certain this is the way we do religion. He's saying all along it is always pointed to me. It's always about me. How many years have you guys seen water being poured out? How many years has the water evaporated to be forgotten again? How many years has it just been in your head, the kind of kingdom that God has, and somewhere God's going to do something, and maybe when these things line up, and I'm still trying to make sense of my life. And Jesus is saying, I've been here in your midst all along. The religion points to relationship. It's not doing the same thing over and over again. It's not just, you know, going through the motions uh, from what you know. But it's saying, taste and see. Do as I would do. And he's saying, it would be not just waiting for water to dry up that somebody else poured out, but water flowing from you. Such a radically different life. Notice the, the tenses here. He's saying, guess what? Rivers of living water will flow. By this he meant the Spirit whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Up to that time, the Spirit had not been given since Jesus has not been glorified. 
Okay, I've been talking all, all, all along about what, what's up with water in the book of John. You, you get that there's, like, water is a deliberate theme in John, right? The woman at the well, the turning water into wine, the lame man at the pool of Bethsaida by the sheep sacrifice gate. Um, there's just water all over the place, the pouring out of the water, the streams of living water. Okay, what John is doing is saying, everywhere we see water in the Old Testament and everywhere it's connected in John, it's connected to the Old Testament hope of restoration. Jacob's well, the pool of Bethsaida, the ceremonial purifying jars, all of these things that was religion. If you do this, you'll be okay with God. If you do this, you'll be okay with God. But the people were left just in their own understanding. And what it pointed to was relationship. So everywhere Jesus showed up, no, it's not this water that your forefathers dug. It's the true need of your heart to have dignity and honor and to be set free. No, it's not just washing your hands and being ritually pure so everybody can all conform and be the same. It is such a better experience and taste of the kingdom far beyond anything you could ever imagine. No, it's not just hopefully getting first and elbowing others to get the blessing waiting for God to do a miracle in your life. It is me, the healer, who is standing before you asking if you really want to be well. And so everywhere people were certain that their needs could be met with their understanding of ritual and going through the motion and doing this, Jesus completely turned around and said, no, it is me. It is relationship. That is the truth. That is the freedom. As long as we're just clean into what we know and no more, we're, we're blocking out what God can do in our life. And this is one of the greatest ironies. Where we say God has to be this way. God can't be this way. And we, 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 we run to the ramparts. We miss what God's doing. And so Jesus closes off with this because they weren't quite at that place and I'm still a work in progress as well. He's talking about the promise of the Holy Spirit. We're not there yet. All you guys have is your understanding and hey, this is good and, and you're going there. Don't, don't hold on too tightly. But this, this, what I'm doing here, it's the Holy Spirit that's gonna flow freely to each and every one. And so he completely turns it around on how do we apprehend God? Is it enough to know the right thing? There's probably, there's a number of people, um, if you're a visitor, you're probably checking out this church, and you've probably got one of three categories. If you've got kids, it's like, can I leave my kids here or not? If you can't, you're out of here. Straight up. I get that. Fair enough. I do the same thing. If, um, if, if you come in here, you're probably looking at, well, how's the worship? Is this the kind of worship that I'm used to and can go with, and can I worship here? And then you're probably looking at the message. You know, is it, a, is it, is it the word of God? Do I agree with, do you agree with me? And if you do, you might stick around. If you don't, you probably won't. And not that any of these are bad things. But the, again, I raise the question, is this where we, wind, is this where we um, wind up? Or is this where we jump off? Is this where it's the sum total of all that I'm certain about and the way the church needs to be and the way I am and my needs and, and, and the way it is and I'm certain and I've arrived here and no more? then really we're in the same position as Jesus' brothers uh, pre-resurrection, as, as the people in Jerusalem, as the leaders, um, as all of this. Or is it a sense of, yes, everything I uh, know up to this point is all that I do know, but I also know that I am so inadequate when it comes to fully understanding God. In his grace and in his mercy, he has lavished himself upon me that in bits and pieces in this 5% and where I struggle, I can experience more. And I do that by doing his will. And I'm only able to do that by seeing him. And I'm able to see him by knowing him in his word. And do you see how it all holds together now? When we're looking at how can I better see him, the one who sent me, 
so I can know how I can be in this world, that's going to be the Holy Spirit released. That is going to be the freedom. That's going to be basically the whole rest of this book now and the point that John's going to be making. We're getting to where we're turning a corner. Lean not on your own understanding. Your understanding is great. Your understanding is wonderful and it's necessary in, in, in walking toward God. But the proper understanding of who God is, is the beginning of wisdom, is the beginning of understanding and the beginning of passion. There are a lot of people that were very faithful in religion, but they did so to establish themselves. And that was the problem with the law. And we still do that today. My certainty, my take, I establish myself. I am right. My tribe over your tribe. My clan over your clan. My theological perspective over your theological perspective. And basically what I'm doing is saying I'm ultimately God in my life. And when God corresponds to me, I'll let him in. When I hear the sermon and I agree with it, I'll stick around. When I hear a sermon I don't like, I'm, I'm gone with God. And I do that. And I have found thinking about it more, getting counterbalancing information, all that, that's only a small part. The best way to work this through is to just do the 95% that we know. Do the next thing that God is asking us to do. Love the next person God has brought. Forgive the next grudge that you've been made aware of. Uh, Just pressing into him here, and the rest of this is going to sort itself out and take care of itself. Okay, the reason John went into such a big deal here is because this is a core understanding for the rest of the book and and not putting the cart before the horse in our understanding. And it's tied up in absolute freedom, absolute release, absolute engagement with the Holy Spirit. But he doesn't want us holding on to it at arm's length. He wants us embracing it and jumping into the very river that that will actually flow out of his side as we're going to see later on. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that as much as I feel constrained by time, obviously not enough during the sermon, but constrained by time uh, in the rest of life, I thank you that you are not so bothered, that you put the emphasis on abiding, on going away, on coming back, on being a prodigal so that we could be embraced, on letting things soak in, on go and do this and come back and see, on try this, um, on on living the life that, that you've given us to live for the purposes for which you've given it, that we can discover more of you, we can let go of more of us. Thank you, Father, that the things are fr- that are frustrating, the things that are disappointing should be, because they shouldn't be that way. But I thank you, Lord, that you've not left us on our own or just with our minds to figure it out or just with who has a better answer. But you've given us a third rail to grab onto and to power up, and that by doing seeing where you were working, seeing the lives that you go toward, the marginalized, the vulnerable, the unlovely, like all of us, that we can be most beloved in you. And so, Lord, help us to see uniquely this week for each of us, what is the next doing? What is the next responding? What is the next seeking to see what comes from you and what doesn't uh, by trying it out in the lives of others? And I just pray for wisdom, pray for courage, and I pray for clarity, Lord, that we would know your voice and others we would not follow. In your name we pray.